As we begin this morning, I want to just uh, have a little bit of review from last week. Um, what we talked about was the battle really between spiritual forces and ideas. Uh, we gave some different examples of that, but we kind of started off with uh, this, this uh, well, I'll, I'll get that pass in just a moment, but we, we started off with this graphic here, um, which uh, had to do with the, the struggle that we see that um, Paul gives uh, regarding the Colossians with what the scriptures say about Christ and the truths about Jesus, and then what those who would seek to take that away from people, those who would seek to dupe us, uh, what they're bringing. And the examples that we gave, basically, if you remember it, it just had to do with the fact that there's a, a lot of things that, that they say that sound good on the surface, but when you examine them, there's really not any substance to them at all. And some of the things that we examine actually go against teaching. So the issue that we have here is it's, it's, it's really Christ against any and all false teaching. And just to go back to that passage, I'm not sure what I just did there. There we go. That was interesting. Anyway, um, let's go ahead and read together here. Let me read for you uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, where we're going to be today. And again, it, it kind of uh, brings us back also to this to this um, uh, uh, warning that Paul gave. So it says here, uh, again, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried in him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And we will... Uh, stop right there for this morning. So as we, as we think of this passage and, and, and what it's saying, um, you know, what we want to do is, is get to this idea, what is this ritual of circumcision? And I, you know, what it comes down to is this, it, it, it's, it's a difficult topic, partly because maybe we don't all know exactly where this comes from and everything. And so I want to make sure that we go back and examine this. But before we do that, again, I just want to review the issues that we had with false teaching were these three things. One was traditions and rituals. The other one was what we called asceticism, or the idea of, of, of not participating in certain, certain things, of, of, of keeping um, ourselves from maybe uh, enjoying food or other things like that, of, of, of wearing very plain clothes, you know, whatever it might be, uh, having, having to subdue the body 
out of some type of spiritual um, uh, requirements so that we measure up, right? That's the idea of asceticism. And then really that kind of leads to this, but the other thing is this idea of transcendence. Transcendence was that big word that meant that there's something bigger and better out there. That, that there's some secret thing, some secret plan, some formula that's going to give us this bigger spiritual hit, right? And so when we think of these three different things, and then you kind of compare to false teaching, particularly the different things that are swirling around today, what really comes out of that? It's one of these three things. It's either keep this and then you're good. Don't do these things and then you're a better person. Or, hey, we've got an experience for you, but only if you're like in the secret society. And then, then if you got that going for you, then, then you are better spiritually. So there's always an angle. The problem is we go back to this idea of the fact that they don't want to acknowledge who Jesus is. They're going to take something away from him. They're going to add something to the scriptures, whatever it might be. And so, again, that's a little bit of what we shared last week. So as we, as we think of this idea of circumcision, and you notice the way I read the scriptures here, we went back a little bit. And so I'm going to take an illustration from sewing. Now, I don't know how many of you sew in here. I do not. But I do remember, a, a, you know, a, a concept, all right, a sewing concept, something that you do, a, a technique. And the idea here is, is that you backstitch, Okay. So I know someone's going to say, you didn't have that quite right. There are, there's more than one way to backstitch, okay? So if my way is not your way, that's fine. But, but basically what you do is, is you, you make your stitch, right? And then instead of just making another stitch and another stitch, you actually extend the needle further, bring it back, and then bring it up under what you already stitched. So what you're doing is you're actually almost kind of creating a double stitch. I see some people nodding. Yes! Okay, so, so here's the point. You kind of go back over a little bit of what you covered to tie it into the next part. And so what that does is, for example, on a seam, it creates a stronger seam. That's really what I want to try to do and I've been trying to do in teaching this. So yes, we've been kind of going over some things, but we've been trying to stitch things together so that when you have falsehood coming your way or trials or whatever it might be, that your seams are tight, that you're going to spiritually hold together, okay? So we're going to wait ourselves through um, some of these things here. And, and when I say that, I don't want to make it like, oh, we're going to wait. You know, that's not it. It's just, there's going to be a lot of information about one specific subject. But in order to understand this passage right, we need to provide a little more stitching, okay? So that's what we're going to be doing. So what is this ritual of circumcision, as we consider this concept of spiritual circumcision, we first need to trace it to the Jewish roots back to their ritual in the Old Testament, which was a physical thing. It was uh, a ritual, and by the way, a ritual is a religious observance or action, okay? And it's something that's repeated, something that's done over and over again. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We could say that our baptism is a ritual, Okay, it is something that we don't repeat personally over and over again, but it's something that we as believers, we repeat. Everyone who places their faith in Christ and says they want to identify with him, that is what we do through immersion, okay? Also, when we celebrate the Lord's table, okay, 
That too is a ritual. That doesn't mean that it has to be steeped in mystery and all those kinds of things, but it's something that we repeat, something that we do in observance of what we believe. Okay? So just that simple. So circumcision was a physical sign of God's spiritual covenant with Abraham. And the passage that we're going to passages that we're going to be looking at are going to explain this very um, very well as far as what circumcision is. But I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. And I will tell you, I did not get the Pew Bible numbers on there, and I'm sorry about that. I, I just ran into some snags this morning. So uh, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. And I'll just tell you, it's going to be real easy. You're just going to start heading right Okay, through the scriptures as we go through this. But Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram, and by the way, his name was changed to Abraham, but I just want to let you know it's the same guy. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings uh, shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land which, in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after, after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Now, now notice, I'm not reading the same verse over and over again. You see how God is reinforcing what he's saying here, all right? He's not, he's not repeating just to repeat. This wasn't some scribe just made a wrong insertion here. He's telling him, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm making a covenant with you, right? So here's what he says. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the circumcised male, male child who is not circumcised I'm sorry, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God's serious about this, all right? And this was this covenant with Abraham. Now I want to talk about that just for a little bit. This was what we call a unilateral or one-sided covenant that God made with Abraham. It was one-sided in that God placed no conditions or requirements on Abraham. Now, he was told, I want you to circumcise you know, those, those children as a sign for it. We'll get into that more. But God said, I am making this covenant with you and with all who come after you. Right? All he was to do was simply to believe God and to be faithful to him. 
It was also an everlasting covenant. We need to keep that in mind. So again, the Lord called Abraham, then known as Abram, out of the ancient Mesopotamia to what we know as Israel. God ultimately promised Abram, Abraham three things that we simply list. And by the way, there are many, I shouldn't say many, there are multiple times when God made his covenant with Abraham known. Covenant, contract, promise, whatever we want to say. It, it was something that God said, I will do. And God swore by himself that he would do it, okay? And so as he's, as he's giving these promises, um, it, it happened more than once because part of it was associated with seed or offspring. And Isaac wasn't coming, right? So God is testing Abraham and God is working with Abraham, but he just keeps this. In other, in other words, he has to ratify this covenant more than once. He has to remind him of it more than once. So here's what he basically says to him. I will give you a land to possess. We saw that here, right? I will give you offspring and I will make you the father of many nations. And then he also says uh, in several places, I will bless you. So we just say that very simply, the land, the seed or the offspring, and the blessing. Okay, Those are the three things that God promised that he would give to Abraham as his covenant. And then God gave Abraham circumcision to be a sign of this everlasting covenant that the Lord made with him. So let's look at circumcision now as as a um, specific ordinance to observe the Passover. We're going to fast forward a little bit here, but not too far. We're going to go to uh, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and you can see that in front of you here. It says, And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Okay, so this chapter here is where the first Passover is observed. And in this chapter also is when God poured out the 10th plague on the Egyptians. Okay, so this is what he's saying. Along with the instructions that he gave them, he said, I also want you to understand that you need to be circumcised. Now, this was technically after the first Passover, right? But he gave these instructions to be, to be uh, tied to the Passover in the future. So in the future, anybody who participated in the celebration of the Passover, of the time when God passed over the children of Israel, why? Because they had put the, the blood of the lamb that they had eaten that night before they left Egypt on the doorposts and over the, over the head of, of the door. In faith... Trusting that them believing God, he was going to pass over them, right? That's, that's the whole picture there. So circumcision was an identification with God saving the children of Israel from the bondage in Egypt, right? So first we have it as being a, a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made with Abraham. Now we see it as being associated with the Passover. By the way, are those two things completely separate from one another? No. God was still fulfilling his promise to Abraham by rescuing his people from Egypt. 
by taking them back to the land that he had promised. Okay? So they are somewhat tied together. There is one mention of circumcision in the law. And I want us to see that. Uh, let's, let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. And again, we're going to just move forward in the Old Testament here. Notice we're, we're in the books of the law. But this, this part is interesting. Le- Leviticus 12 verses 1 through 4. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day of the, of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her pur- pur- purification thirty-three days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her pur- purification are fulfilled." This was part of the law in relation to um, what some people say, and I don't want to get into a whole lot of detail here, but what some people say is this impurity uh, had to do with either the issues of of blood, okay, or it had to do with the fact that uh, a child was born and it was in some ways an acknowledgement um, that that child was born sinful, okay? So either way, the idea was that they were then to stay away from uh, any any uh, articles or or the the temple area or anything like that until their time of purification was fulfilled. But what I want us to see here is this, and this is what's interesting. We 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 have a Genesis account, we have our Exodus account, right? This is now in Leviticus. This is a part of the law. This is the only time that circumcision is mentioned directly with the law. It's the only time. And yet, it's almost a passing statement. Why? Because it had already been established. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that this does not establish it with the law. It does. But all it's really doing is, give me a fancy word, codifying what has already been said to do. Okay? So, someone could even argue that this is really more of a reminder. But it's not the emphasis of the passage. The emphasis is not circumcising the, the, the male child on the eighth day. It had to do with purification. And so, again, just keep that in mind as we move forward with our study. Now, I want to just mention a passage, Joshua chapter 5. Um, in in uh, Joshua chapter 5, we're fast-forwarding now. The children of Israel have left. Obviously, we know that because they were then given the law. Uh, we know that one generation rejected God. They did not want to enter the land. And so he had that generation pass away first. And now he's going to bring the next generation is. Who's leading them? Joshua. Okay, so that's where we're at in history. But here, God tells Joshua to pause before they enter the land. And he wants them to carry out the rite of circumcision because they did not do it on the road for 40 years. I don't know why they didn't do it, but they didn't. So all the males who had been raised in the wilderness for 40 years, they were circumcised. Now this also happened to be, or this happened to be right before they entered the promised land. We said that, but it also happened to be um, right before they celebrated the Passover. So they celebrated the Passover again before they went into the promised land. So 
I, I think that, that there's a lot of things happening here. We have this covenant with Abraham, okay? This is still God's people through Abraham. We, even, even though they're called the children of Israel, right? Jacob, that ultimately that's Abraham's lineage. And so here we have this people that are now going into the land that he promised. That's part of the covenant. And before they go in, he says, hey, I want you to stop celebrate what happened when I got you out of Egypt, right? Now, of course, it had to be the right time of the year. But the point is, that's how God arranged things. And so before they even crossed into the promised land, they remembered who got them there and why they were there. All right? That's pretty cool. But along with that, there was that reinforcement of that identification, that circumcision that took place. So there's some important things that I want you to understand here about the, uh, the Old Testament circumcision. And we're looking at the physical circumcision at this point. The word circumcision is only used 31 times in all of the Old Testament. Now, the word uncircumcised is used at times because that was a kind of a slur almost to those who were not Jewish, okay? And those uncircumcised folks, right? Ten of those times it's used when the Lord introduced the ritual to Abraham as God made his covenant with him. It is used another seven times in the account that we just um, uh, talked about here with Joshua. So that's over half the times. Circumcision is only used, as I mentioned, one time in direct relation to the law. So was circumcision important? It absolutely was. Was it essentially a part of the law? Eh, yes and no. It is linked before the law was given to the covenant with Abraham and as a requirement to observe the Passover. Both of those things were pre-law. So the emphasis is not the law. But as I said before, because it's mentioned there, I do believe that it then became part of the law. But that was not where the emphasis was. It was not to, to link you to the law. It was to link you to who, who the covenant that we had in Abraham, meaning like we're Jews, and the Passover, the rescuing from Egypt. That's where all of that was supposed to be linked back to. This means that the foundational principle of the circumcision is faith. And it is linked back to acts of faith by both Abraham and the children of Israel. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The children of Israel believed God and put the blood on the doorpost and above the doorway so that God would pass over their home. Then the rite of circumcision was linked to that pivotal event where God saved them out of Egypt. Wow. So now what I want to do is I want to switch over to consider, because Paul talked about this, what is spiritual circumcision? Well, again, you know, you kind of get handed some of these topics based upon what the scriptures are going to go through, right? And there was a reason for this because, again, this controversy in Colossians was partly Jewish in nature. So what I want us to do is go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. Now, 
something should have already struck you. Not literally. Where are we going to look at the spiritual circumcision? The law. I mean, I'm just telling you, that was a little bit of a shock to me. I mean, just it just wasn't in my mind as I was starting to study this. It's like, whoa, hey, this is interesting here, right? So let's take a look at this. Again, this is still part of the giving of the law. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. Okay, this is again talking about all those things that God said would happen. The blessings, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. Now I got to pause there for just a minute. Real quick explanation. The contract with Abraham, I mentioned, was unilateral. The contract with the children of Israel was not. Uh, you know, whether it's countries or military, whatever, we call those bilateral, two-sided contract. So God said this, if you do this, I will bless you. But if you do this, meaning the wrong thing, then you will be cursed. I'm going to punish you. All right? So that's what he's referring to when it comes to the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So he's already saying here, you're going to have a problem in the future, and I'm going to drive you out. They haven't even gone to the promised land yet, folks. <laughs> and he's already saying, by the way, you're going to fail. You'd think they would have kept that in mind, right? Anyway, <laughs> so verse 2. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command to you, you and your children, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts of, uh, under the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there you, uh, he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He shall prosper you and multiply you uh, more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all those curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. Wow. See, even when he said you're going to fail, he said, but I'm going to provide a way. Right? So, as we said, this was part of the Mosaic Covenant, the contract that God made with his people under the leadership of Moses. God explains to the people that if they obey him, that means fulfill their part of the contract, then God will bless them as he promised. If they break the contract, then God will curse or judge them. As he promised. The people agreed, by the way, to the terms of the covenant. They said that this we will do. So part of the covenant was, if they rejected God, he would remove them from the land, from the promised land. So we see that he is talking about them coming back after they have broken the covenant. And God explains that he's going to be gracious and he's going to have them return. He's going to bring them back. And when he does that, 
he will spiritually circumcise them. Now we fast forward um, thousands of years to the New Testament. Circumcision in the New Testament. Oddly enough, circumcision is used 54 times in the New Testament. Doesn't that seem kind of reversed? <laughs> when we see how important it seemed to be in the New Testament? Uh, by the way, we're not going to cover every one of those verses, just so you know. But I want to look at a few passages. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So here Paul is showing the futility of, of the value of, of uh, basically following circumcision and obeying the law. Paul makes a very bold statement that a true Jew is one who is circumcised on the inside by the Spirit of God, just like God said he would do. Now, Paul does go on to explain in chapter 3 that there is an advantage to the Jewish people. It's not that there isn't any advantage to them. He says that they were given the word of God. They were entrusted the word of God. He sees this as a great advantage. He even answers those who might doubt this because of the Jews' unbelief by saying that their lack of faith doesn't diminish the credibility of God. It's God's word that really is what matters, not whether or not people follow it. So even though the Jews were given the word and didn't always obey it, in Paul's mind, scripturally now, that's, that's, that's not relevant. What's relevant is God's word itself because it's going to happen. It's going to do what God says, uh, sent out for it to do. Amen. Yet this doesn't change the fact that circumcision has no benefit toward salvation. And that's the thing that Paul was really hammering home in, in the previous chapter. All right? So now let's look at Galatians chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Paul is arguing that circumcision doesn't have any positive or negative effect when it comes to the, our true spiritual life. Now, this is part of Paul's ongoing theme in this letter to convince the Galatians to turn back from considering that they ought to identify with Judaism and become circumcised. This was, if you remember, I mentioned, if Colossians was really a Jewish controversy exclusively, it would sound like Galatians. Because that's where Paul talks specifically about Judaism and what they call the Judaizers. Those who were saying, hey, look, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's, that's what they were linking here. So these Jews in Galatia taught that circumcision was required in order to be a follower of Jesus. And some imply that even, where, even here, there was an idea that just this act of circumcision, that somehow having this happen was, was partly an act of transcendence. Of, of having that experience that is going to raise your spiritual level. I read for you and would like to read again the conclusion of this book. As we um, read earlier, starting again in verse 6 um, in Galatians 
Galatians 6, starting, I'm sorry. Yeah, Galatians 6, starting at verse 6. Sorry about that. I got the, no, starting at verse 11. I'm sorry, folks. I'm staring at verse 6, and I'm getting myself all messed up here. Just forget about it. Okay, chapter 6, verse 11. Let me just read this for you. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand, as many as desire to make a, a good showing in the flesh, these try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, I'll stop here for just a minute. We brought all this stuff from the Old Testament. Is this passage already making a little more sense to you? I hope so. Right? So here we go. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Right? It doesn't matter, circumcised or not, you're still going to break the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. They wanted something to brag about. Look, we created a convert. Right? That's really what they're talking about. So then in verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And we'll move on. I want us to look at another passage in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. As you see on the screen here, beware of dogs. It's going to get a little rough here, folks. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, which had to do with the cutting. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So here is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. This issue is, has come up here. And so what does he say? He begins with a series of warnings about these Judaizers, about those who would say, you have to be circumcised or you're, you're not a Christian. You're not really a true Christian. You have to do this. Again, these warnings are pretty direct. Paul doesn't pull any punches. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and the mutilation. He then declares that it is the Christ follower who is the true circumcision. Well, what type of circumcision are we talking about then, folks? Spiritual circumcision, right. How? He answers that in three ways. First, we worship God in spirit. This term is not some spiritual experience. It is not in a special state of transcendence for the few. That's not what that means. This means that we're able to worship God by what the Spirit has done on our behalf in salvation, meaning that every believer worships God in the Spirit because the Spirit has done a work in us. Number two, we rejoice in Christ. Now, Hold that thought for just a minute as we go to number three. The last one is we do not uh, rely on our own abilities in any way for salvation. What does he say there? He's rejoicing Christ, but we have no confidence in the flesh. When we combine these two phrases, it means that we have true worship because Christ did everything for our salvation and we did nothing for it. That's what it says. Let that sink in. Not because of some experience that we had, not because of some, some traditional thing that we did, but because God the Spirit made us alive, because Christ died on our behalf, and not because of anything we did. So the last one's a negative, all right? Now, just to kind of give us a picture here of what's going on. 
you see, see the map here, and don't, don't worry about the title, it's just a good map. If you kind of uh, look at what we, what we checked out, we have Rome over here. Everybody see the cursor? You see the cursor? No, okay. That's because I don't see it either. Okay. <laughs> you, have, you have Rome way over there, right? Then what was the next city? Was it Philippi? Philippi is right there, right? Then the, the next area was Galatia. Galatia is this area right in here. What's my point in showing you that? It was all over the place. This was not a unique controversy. And by the way, Colossae, you can see where Colossae is in the uh, right center of the map. It was all over the place. The Jews were throughout the Roman Empire because they were scattered there. And in many places, they practiced syncretism. That was the word we used last week, which means that one or more religious beliefs are mixed together. So we go to Philippi, we go to Colossae and Laodicea, by the way. They were part of this letter. We go to Galatia, where there's the cities of Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. Do these sound familiar in the book of Acts? These are all those churches that through the missionary journeys of Paul, he planted. And there was this constant controversy, which then brings us back to our passage in Colossians. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of the all principality and power. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Amen. Those of us who are followers of Christ were once dead in our trespasses, right? But here it tells us that Christ made us alive. Tells us that Christ did a work in us. Now, we could look at this for just a moment here and say, well, um, we have this, we have this uh, spiritual circumcision made without human hands. On the surface, we might say, oh, look, it's a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh. That sounds mysterious, doesn't it? Isn't this like a transcendent moment if we can just figure out what that means? Well, I don't want to disappoint. I want to encourage. Unless We can do that. We can read it that way unless we miss the simple phrase, in him. In Christ, we are spiritually circumcised by the cutting off of our sins. Jesus has removed them from us. Paul has the emphasis by the circumcision of Christ, just in case we missed it. So in him, by the circumcision of Christ, right? He bookends the passage by saying, it was Jesus who did this. So where does this spiritual circumcision comes from? It comes from the work of Christ. The promise that God made, by the way, the Passover. What's one of the names that we give Jesus? He is the Passover lamb. He came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. So we see here the fulfillment of the prophecy in Deuteronomy that he would one day perform a spiritual circumcision of their hearts. And we know that we also were grafted into that. Now I want to then go... Uh, Jump down a little bit. And by the way, we're going to look at this passage again next, uh, in two weeks because there's, there's just too much to cover. But 
in this in this uh, part of it, Colossians two thirteen, it goes back to this idea of circumcision, but it's uncircumcised, right? It says, "And you, being dead under trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses." Let's not forget. We're reminded we were once dead. And this was compared to spiritual uncircumcision. He's talking to Gentiles here. So what he's saying is this. You identified with the world. You did not identify with the Son. You didn't identify with God. The flesh here that it's speaking about isn't literal. It's still figurative language like we had back in verse 11, which refers to the sins of the flesh. So because we studied the background of circumcision, we understand that Paul is saying that someone in this spiritual state is spiritually dead. A spiritually uncircumcised person, someone who has not had their sins removed by Jesus, is spiritually dead. But what does it say that God does for us? It says he makes us alive by forgiving us through the work of Jesus Christ. Wow. All right, so let's, let's, let's bring this to a close here. It's <laughs> a well-timed amen there. No, that's okay. It's, I'm sure someone was thinking the same thing you were talking about. Oh, that was all right. Hey, you know, no, really, it's kind of a weighty topic, right? And there's a lot of information here. And some of us, maybe we have a little bit of a limited background to, to the Old Testament stuff. That's, that's why we got to go back and look at this stuff. That's why we got to bring it forward. But I really do hope that it's brought some clarity. So here we go. What does this ancient ritual have to do with us in the present day? After all, we aren't fighting over circumcision and salvation, right? Last time I checked... There wasn't a group in the church that was saying, hey, we need to make sure that everybody eight years and over is circumcised. For purely practical reasons, I hope this study has either refreshed or increased your understanding of this topic. That, that it wasn't about keeping the law. It never was. It never was. It was about identifying with God's gracious acts. <laughs> so the takeaways that we can have is God-given observances are only beneficial when they point people to the truth. God-given observances are only beneficial when they point people to the truth. God-given observances must be carried out properly in order to accurately point people to the truth they are to represent. Is that making sense? To observe cannot take away from, wrongfully add to, or become more important than what, is suppo- what it's supposed to highlight. So the observance itself can't take away from or overshadow or eliminate what the observance is about. Circumcision, this God-given ritual or observance was never intended to be a form of grace. It was never intended to somehow either earn salvation. 
It was intended to highlight and identify people with God's acts of grace and salvation. That's what it was all about. So what Paul is saying here is this. As a believer, as a believer, you already have that. You have a spiritual circumcision in Jesus. Don't worry about the physical. You are, you aren't, doesn't matter. What has to do with, are you a follower of Christ? Has he removed your sin from you? So again, let me just say that again. Circumcision, this God-given ritual or observance, was never intended to be a form of grace. It was never intended to be a way to earn salvation. It was intended to highlight and identify people with God's acts of grace and salvation. And then just to leave you with this, God-given observances will never be given by God for the purpose of diminishing what they are intended to magnify. Folks, if anybody ever, now we're talking God-given, but there's all kinds of other things that people try to have us observe. If anything is ever presented to you as something that you need to do that somehow diminishes what we already have in Jesus, it's just flat out wrong. If, any, if anything that someone presents to you diminishes who Jesus is, it's just never right. It's never right. If it adds to Scripture, it's never right because it would diminish the message that God has clearly given to us. Now, I understand at first look, that's really easy to see, right? But these are cunning words. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. This, this is the philosophies of the world, right? People have thought through these things. They're looking for weaknesses. But at least today, we can come away with this fact. That circumcision, even physical, was always tied back to God's grace. And now when we look at the promise that God gave back in the law, the fulfillment of that is Jesus taking our sin away from us, taking that flesh away from us, right? Now I understand we still struggle with sin, but we're talking about a positional thing, that our sins were paid for, they were taken away, our salvation was made complete in Jesus. We're waiting for its full completion, but we're complete in Christ. And we already saw that in a previous week. So let's move forward together in understanding that we have what we need. And that was provided for by Christ himself. We have what we need because the Holy Spirit did a work in us. We had what we need because God sent his son and was satisfied with what he did. And, and folks, I just got to say real quick, we're looking at this this week. Next week, we're going to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Christ. And the week after that, we're going to go back to this passage again. But they're kind of all together. And folks, I wish I could say I planned that. I did not. But I just think it's neat how God did that. Because again, we're looking at the fulfillment of the Passover next week, really. Right? The Passover lamb, the one who's going to take the sins away. He did that for us. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, you are, again, as we say so many times, a good and great God. Your greatness is your character. You don't change. You love. You judge appropriately. You're holy. All those different things that we remember about you and, and appreciate so much about you. It's, it's, we worship you because of those things. But then we see how you, in your greatness, you deal with us in gentleness, in kindness, in grace, in patience. When we see the character of Christ, God the Son, the Word made flesh, and how he lived among us and what he put up with, all to ultimately give himself for us. It's, it's mind-blowing. It is beyond what any of us would or could do for anybody else. And of course, there's no way we could take our own sins away or anybody else's. But we thank you for that great gift. And I pray, Lord, that as we just keep in mind that you have taken our sin away, Lord, I pray that we will do really what you told your Old Testament people to do. That part hasn't changed. Jesus said the same thing to us. We love the Lord with our whole heart and our whole mind and our whole soul. God, we want to aspire to that. We want to do that. Forgive us for when we don't. But Lord, we ask that you would just continue to encourage us to be more like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.